I love it that when I come on a Sunday morning, I never know who's going to be up here leading music and, and leading us in worship. Thank you guys for that. Um, it's always fun to be able to sing together with you and praise the Lord together. Um, so you, I just want to address something here this morning before we begin, and we're going to be in Luke 17. I want you to turn there in Luke 17. And you may wonder, PD, we come to church to get away from our kids, to take them to children's church. <laughs> what are you doing to us? <laughs> well, this isn't just, you know, just a, like a thing that we just do because like, you know, it's good for the children's church leaders and that, which it is. But it's good for you kids to be in here too. And it's good for you moms and dads to have your kids sitting with you in church. And I hope you're setting the right example for them this morning. Like, if you're tempted to get on your phone, moms and dads, this isn't the Sunday to do that. <laughs> okay? This isn't the time to check your Facebook feed this morning when your kids are sitting here. This is the time to open your Bible and to start setting good examples for them as to how important the Word is and why we do this. Okay? This isn't just something that big people need. This is something that little people need. Am I right? And so this morning when we come to Luke 17, kids that are in here, I'm so glad you're in here. Because Luke 17, is, it's important for you too. It's not just important for your moms and your dads and your grandparents and, and all the old people in the church. It's important for you too. And so I hope that here in a minute when we read this text together that you will get close to somebody and you will read the word with them this morning. Dads, moms, get your kids close to you, open the Bible up, have them read with you this morning when we read. It's been a while since we've been in Luke. It's been a couple months. And so I want to just kind of quickly lay some groundwork so that we are all on the same page. We're, we're, we're coming to a, a really interesting section of this book now. We're coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry, and so things are really winding down. But even before we think about that, let's kind of expand out and let's understand why this book was written. It's been a while since we've talked about that. We know from Luke chapter 1, in fact, I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 for us. This is Luke telling why he's writing the book. And that's important to us so that we can understand why this book was originally written, who it was written to, what the purpose of it was, so that we can understand for ourselves what it's supposed to mean for us. In Luke chapter 1, he, he writes this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." This is Luke. Luke is a companion of the Apostle Paul, probably a really close companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke is a physician and probably was a part of that mission team that went out wherever Paul went. But Luke was not, a, was not an eyewitness to many of the things, or if any of the things that we have here in his gospel. He, he has taken the time to research, to get the eyewitness accounts and write it down. In many ways, Luke's not only a physician, but he's like an investigative reporter. And he's writing this for the purpose of one man that's going to read it. You see it there in verse 3 of chapter 1, a guy who he calls Theophilus, okay? 
Now, Theophilus is probably just a kind of pseudonym for this guy. This guy is most likely a Roman official that's come to know Christ as his Savior, maybe under the ministry of Paul when Paul was imprisoned or something like that. And, and you know, you know, Paul's been chained between two guards when he's under house arrest. So you have this guy who's come to know Christ as his Savior, and he wants to know more. And so Luke is writing to him, and he's basically compiling, if you will, the history of Jesus' ministry. And he's going to do it in a two-volume account. The Gospel of Luke is, is what Jesus did in Jesus' ministry, who he was, what he said, what that means to us. And then you have the book of Acts that he writes as kind of like an addendum to that or the companion letter. And that's all about what happened when Jesus' followers were left here after Jesus left. It's the beginning of the church, and it's how the church has expanded. For a history guy like me, I, this gets me jazzed up, okay? Some of you are like, and especially you kids, you're like, history? Ugh. I love this stuff, though. He is giving to us this history of Jesus that he has dug into, and he's talked to the eyewitnesses. And so he's writing it down. And as I said, now, by the time we come to Luke 17, we're getting later in Jesus' ministry. Jesus had a public ministry of about three years. So we're in that third year of ministry now. And, and, and as I've pointed out to us, there's several times here in the book of Luke where Luke clues us in just by his use of geography uh, that we're getting close to the end here. As Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, as he's, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he's making his way to the place where he's going to die. And as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, as he gets closer to his arrest and his crucifixion, the, the opposition to him just as much as he gets closer, the opposition increases. The Pharisees especially are turning up the heat on him. When we were last here two months ago in Luke chapter 16, this was all about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. In, in chapter 16, verses 14 through 17, and even into 18, you see Jesus in what I would call a skirmish with the Pharisees. Okay, And this was, this was becoming quite common. The Pharisees were looking to put the heat on Jesus. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to catch him in a fault so that they could come up with a reason to actually put him to trial and ultimately put him to death. So in these final weeks and months of ministry, what is Jesus' focus? Well, his focus is the same as it's always been in his ministry, and that is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. To proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But in the, in the proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom, he's also having to confront the Pharisees. And, and as we keep going on, we're going to notice that the confrontations become much more direct, much more, and, and Jesus, if you will, is not holding anything back on them. But he's also got a very important ministry, and this is, this is where our text comes in today. And it's the ministry of preparing his followers for what their ministry is going to be after he leaves. See, there's this thing that we talk about, and we use it in churches, this word that we use. If, as soon as I say the word, you, it's going to immediately conjure something up in your mind, the word discipleship, right? How many of you are thinking 13 easy lessons and like sitting down with somebody and having a mentor, and, and, and discipleship is so much more than that. Discipleship is living a life with somebody, life on life, and it's, it's, it's this gradual, if you will, training if you have children today, whether or not you realize it, you are discipling your children. You are, you are, just by the way that you're living, the way that you're acting, the way that you're talking, you are discipling them in some way. The people that, that you minister to in the context of the local church and, and even your friends and neighbors, in a way, 
you're representing Christ to them, and you're discipling them. And so now, here we have Jesus working, and he's discipling, and he is, he is going to kind of, in this chapter right here, just really deal with the heart of discipleship. I chose to call this message Ordinary Disciples. Ordinary Disciples. And, and that's really what we're all called to be. So get a Bible in front of you, and let's look at Luke chapter 17 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. So this is on the heels of him giving the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and that's really a rebuke of the Pharisees in many ways, okay? And then he says in 17.1, and he said to his disciples, so, so picture in your mind, Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees, this large crowd, and he kind of turns to his followers. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Well, that's some really good news for today, isn't it? <laughs> Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Let me read that again. Pay attention to yourselves. Just look up here for a second from your reading. When Jesus says pay attention to yourselves, what does he want us to do, church? Is that, pretty, is that a pretty like, big warning to us? Yeah, we're going to come back to that. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Join me in prayer this morning. Lord, what we know not this morning, would you teach us? And what we have not this morning, would you give us? And most importantly, what we are not this morning, would you make us through Jesus Christ our Lord? Amen. Think with me about the word ordinary. Ordinary. You know, in our, in our culture, in, in, in the life that, that, that we are a part of, in the world around us, ordinary is not celebrated, is it? In fact, we are told to, 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 to not settle for ordinary. We're told to be better than ordinary. We're told to rise above. We're, we're basically told that ordinary is just bad. And, and so in our minds, we think of ordinary as just like mediocre. It's just like, just like getting a C in school, just getting enough to pass. That's ordinary. There's nothing exceptional about ordinary. And ordinary is not typically celebrated, is it? unless you have a kid in youth sports where everybody gets a participation ribbon, right? Right? Ordinary is not celebrated. 
Okay? You know, you think about you think about athletes. Nobody gets most ordinary player of the year award. By the way, kids, it's not just your generation. When I was in junior high, which was like generations ago, I played on the seventh and eighth grade basketball team at Elyria Christian Academy up in Elyria, Ohio. The fighting eagles we were. We had seventh and eighth graders. There were only two seventh graders on that team, and there were, I think, eight or ten eighth graders. And every year, our coach handed out an award to everybody. He went in his shop, and he cut out this wood. He made these wood blocks, and then he put paper on it, and he did, what is that, decoupage, like that stuff that they used to do? And, and he would hand us these awards. I got the award for most improved seventh grade player. It's another definition of Ordinary. <laughs> ordinary. Ordinary is seen as negative. We're told in our world that we need to stand out and we need to rise above ordinary. But I would say to you, as a follower of Jesus, we all are just called to ordinary. We're all just called to ordinary. And and, and I don't want you to think of that as a bad thing. We're not called to laziness. We're not called to being mediocre. We're called to be ordinary and to be ordinary and do it well. In other words, in many ways, we're called to be extraordinarily ordinary. Now, for some of us, that's given us a headache already. But later on in the book of Luke, before we dig into 17, in chapter 22, he says this, The greatest among you will be like the youngest, and the leader will be like the one who serves. That's Jesus' words. The greatest among you will be like the youngest, and and the leader will be like the one who serves. That's kind of ordinary, isn't it? Jesus is here saying that, 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 the, that the goal that we should all be shooting for, what we should all be aiming for in, in, in our carrying out of our Christian life is, is to be the best ordinary Christian I can be. Now that might like seem to smack you in the face, but we're called to be servants. And in, in, in the time that Jesus lived, there was nothing more ordinary than being a servant. There were a lot of them. And, and, and if you were a servant, you just blended in with a lot of other servants in that society. And so this morning, I want us to see four things in this text that are going to help us to understand what ordinary discipleship looks like. I'm going to help you. Kids, pay attention here. I'm going to give you the four points of my message right here, kids, okay? Number one, you need a faithful testimony. We need to be faithful in our testimony. Number two, we need to be faithful in our forgiveness. Number three, we need to have an honest self-assessment. An honest self-assessment. And number four, we need to be faithful in our duty. Okay? So let's unpack this idea. So Jesus turns from the Pharisees, who he has sternly rebuked, and he turns to his disciples. And at that moment, we might be, if we're in the crowd, thinking Jesus is about to commend us as his disciples. We are the faithful ones here. We're not like the Pharisees. Jesus isn't rebuking us. Jesus is about to say something really nice to us, right? And here's what he says in verse 1. Hey, disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. What does he mean by that? Well, let's, let's try to unpack that. 
Because we're human beings, because of our human condition, because none of us are perfected yet, because we carry around a sin nature with which we are constantly at warfare with if we're taking our Christian life seriously, there are going to be things around us that are going to tempt us to sin. Does this relate to your life? You ever get tempted to be angry? You ever get tempted to think like you shouldn't think? You ever get tempted to say something you shouldn't say? It's like temptations are sure to come. And because of that, we have to be careful. He goes on to say, temptations are going to be a part of life, but notice what he says, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, when Jesus pulls out the word that he spoke in Aramaic that translated in our Bibles as woe, he, he was getting pretty serious. Can I just put it that way to us this morning? When, when Jesus used the word woe, he, he's taken something really seriously, and he's like, you really need to pay attention to this. And so he says, woe to the one through whom they come. What's he driving at here? These temptations are stumbling blocks. In fact, you may have a Bible translation in front of you that uses the word stumbling block. Okay? It means to make somebody fall. And, and, and here's the thing. They're inevitable. They're sure to come. Mark it down. I am in the course of my life, I'm going to do something that's going to cause somebody to stumble. Not proud of that. I'm not excusing that. But you, as a believer, are going to do something that's going to cause somebody to stumble. And Jesus says, woe to those who cause that. The other idea of the word temptation or stumbling block connotates the idea of setting a trap. Now, you and I hopefully are not knowingly going out and setting traps for other believers to fall into. But we can very much unwittingly, indirectly do that, can't we? As I was considering this, and considering Jesus' strong words for the ones who are causing others to stumble, I was thinking about the ways that, that we could possibly do that. And you know, I'm thinking like as a dad, are there things that I can do that can cause my kids to stumble? Oh yeah, yeah. I can just list you a litany of things that, that I do that cause my kids to stumble. And then I was thinking, like, what about as a pastor are things that I can do that cause people to stumble? And then I was thinking about you and, and, and as, as, as you go about your lives. Are there, there's so many things that we can do to cause people to stumble. But I think it all comes back down to this. And it all starts with this. If we don't have our doctrine right if we don't have what, we've, what we know to be true about the word of God right, then we're not going to live correctly, correct? Right? So if we, don't, if we don't have what God's word says, and if we don't have that correct, you know, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses I've memorized, it doesn't matter how many areas I serve in or whatever, if my doctrine isn't right, if what I believe isn't right, then what I practice is not going to be right. And I think a lot of the traps that we set even as fathers and mothers, as people who teach Sunday school, as those who come and serve in Awana, as those who just are trying to live a godly life on the job, a lot of the traps that we set are is because we really don't live out what we think is true in the Word of God. Our practice doesn't match our theology. 
And if we get bad teaching, and if we're giving bad teaching, we are definitely setting a trap. Dads, can I just appeal to you for a second? Do you realize that if you're not a student of the word, and you're not digging into the word, and it's not affecting your life, you are in danger of setting traps for your family? Now, that sounds kind of serious, doesn't it? But, but if we as fathers are, are, not, are not immersed in the Word of God and understand it, and we take the time to dig in, and you're like, well, theology sounds like something that should be done at a seminary. No, every one of us that are in Christ are called to be theologians. It's a study of God's Word. And if we're not doing that hard work, we're, we're unwittingly setting traps for our family. And notice... Notice what Jesus says, woe to the ones that are setting the trap. I don't know what the woe is, but when Jesus says it would be better in verse 2 to have what happens in verse 2 is better than the woe, I think Jesus is taking this pretty seriously, don't you? Notice what he says in verse 2. It would be better for that person who sets the trap if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, don't think little ones is just little kids here. Little ones is other believers, those who are following you. Jesus is, is giving a stern warning here. And he says this, ordinary disciples, just like the 12 that he was talking to there and, and the other larger group of people who followed him, to, to, you have to, if you're going to be my follower, you have to really pay attention to your testimony and your conduct and your living. Can we just be honest with one another? It's hard in this life to keep a spotless testimony, isn't it? Am I right? There's a big pressure to not have that. There's a big pressure from the world. There's a big pressure, and, and sometimes there's even a pressure from our brothers and sisters in Christ who are like, whoa, I think you're taking this a little too far. And Jesus says then at the beginning of verse 3, pay attention to who? <laughs> pay attention to others? And their conduct and their testimony, let's be honest, church, who's, when it comes to conduct and testimony, whose conduct and testimony do we want to pay attention to? I want to watch your conduct and testimony, and, and I want to make sure that mine is better than yours. Right? And what is Jesus telling his disciples and telling us? No, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. So an ordinary disciple is first faithful in their testimony. Let's be honest, to be ordinary is not easy then, is it? It's not easy to not be an offense to somebody. Secondly, an ordinary disciple is faithful in how they extend forgiveness. So understand this. In the course of Jesus' ministry, just think with me for a second. Do you suppose that there are people who have said some pretty hateful things to Jesus and his followers up to this point? Church, what do you think? Yeah? You, th you, think that you think there's been some insults thrown at them? You think they've been poorly treated? Yeah. And, and, and here's what Jesus says. Pay attention to yourselves, verse 3. If your brother, he's not even just talking about people on the outside. He's talking about a brother in Christ. It's like, if your brother sins against you, you let him have it. 
with both barrels, like you just quote scripture at him and just unload on him, right? What's he say? If your brother sins, rebuke him. How many of you enjoy being rebuked? How many of you enjoy rebuking? How many of you can come up with a million reasons why you shouldn't speak up to somebody who's sinning? It's not my business. It's their life. It's not my thing. I mean, you know, that's between them and God. No, here's what Jesus says. Notice what he says. If your brother sins, what's he say? Rebuke him. Go to him. Correct him. Why? So that you can look better than him? No, because you love him. He's your brother. Let's be honest. The church does a lousy job of rebuking one another. Am I right? That's the pastor's job. Right? That's, that, my role in the rebuking is to send an email to the pastor and let him handle this. Right? My, my role in this is, is to just quietly whisper something to, to one of the elders on the way out of church. I don't know if you know about sister so-and-so, but that's not rebuking, that's gossip. As ordinary disciples, we are called to rebuke one another, which is why most of us are not ordinary. Can I just be blunt? Because it's, it's, it's really hard. Because when you, when you open that door and you rebuke somebody, what does that leave you open for? Rebuke back. You see, here's the thing. A rebuke is a reprimand. It's a warning. It's an admonishment. It's exactly what Jesus told us in 18, or Matthew 18, 15 to do. If someone sins against you, you go tell him his fault. And what is the goal of telling him his fault? It's to restore that brother. It's to see that brother in right relationship with the Lord and with you and with others. Now to do that, and to do that well as a faithful disciple, we better have the logs out of our own eye, had we not? Right? We'd better, we'd better have all the, the, you know, the big timbers that are hanging out of our eye before we go looking for specks in somebody else's eye. But, but I want to just submit to you that Jesus, as he presents this to his disciples, in his mind, as he's teaching his disciples, this is what ordinary disciples do. And there's a corollary then to it. You rebuke the one who sins, and if he repents, then you forgive him. Well, that just makes sense, Right? Somebody does something wrong, and they say, you know what? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? You forgive them, right? But here's the thing that happens, because I know because I've done it, and I've had it done to me. Some idiot like me continues to keep sinning. Right? Right? You're not an idiot like me? And, and I, will, I will sin against my wife, over and over. Don't believe me? Ask her after the service. And I find myself asking to ask for forgiveness for the same thing. Now, when that happens to me and someone wants forgiveness for the same thing, you know how my heart works? 
Come on. If you really meant it, you wouldn't do it, right? Notice what Jesus says. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, what does Jesus say? Judge his motive, right? Judge his motive. No, what's he say? He gives an imperative, doesn't he? You must forgive. If disciples aren't good at rebuking, guess what? We're also not good at forgiving either. And this is what Jesus calls as as ordinary discipleship. This is just the ordinary way of of how we're to do this, which then leads me to the third point. When, When the disciples hear this, what is their response? I love their response. (laughs) The disciples are like, we're in over our head. Lord, increase our faith. Because let's be honest, to have a solid testimony in the world, to be someone who who corrects sin and and wants forgiveness and and wants to give forgiveness, guess what? We are weak in all those areas. And here's what the disciples, they, they didn't ask for, Lord, give us more love. Lord, give us more courage. Lord, give us more tolerance. They asked for, Lord, increase our faith. Why? Why faith? Because... They had, been, they had been told many times already up to this point about their lack of faith. How many times when you're reading through the Gospels does Jesus go to rebuke his disciples? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. If you only had more faith. And they finally under, they've made the connection now, these disciples have. And they're basically saying this, Lord, don't give me more faith. Increase the faith that you've already given me. Cause it to grow. Cause it to grow. And Jesus acknowledges their request. He he affirms their request. He says this, you're right. If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree. The mulberry tree was known for its, its very strong root system, its very extensive root system. You don't just pull up a mulberry tree, right? But he said this, if you just had a little bit of faith, like the size of a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would do it. In other words, what he's saying to us is, most of us have a really puny faith. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Yeah. And so, if you're having problem you know, with, with the way that you're living, if you're having problems, you know, having a good testimony, if you're having problems with, with rebuking others in their sin or with forgiving others, Jesus isn't saying, you know, you, you just need, you know, another 13-week Bible study. You know what he's saying is you need your faith increased. Now, be careful what you ask for when you ask God to increase your faith. What did that mean for the disciples? What did that mean for the disciples? It meant a lot of hardship, didn't it? Lord, increase our faith. Well, here's how I'm going to increase your faith. I'm going to leave you. What? Yeah. I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit with you, but I'm not going to be with you every day anymore. And I'm going to ask you to do some really hard things. You ask God to increase your faith and, and you mean that request, he will do it and he will stretch it and he will exercise it in ways that you did not think were possible. 
But faithful disciples have to have an honest assessment and evaluation of themselves. And the disciples here did. They understood, yeah, we're, we're not good in these first two areas that Jesus is talking about, and we need more faith. We need more faith. Increase our faith. You say, Pastor Dan, how are you so sure that this is just ordinary disciples? Because this sounds like superhero disciples, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Doesn't it sound like superhero disciples? A, a, a man or a woman that, that has a good testimony with others, that, that, that will rebuke sin and can do it well in a humble, gracious way, and that will forgive others and, and has faith. That sounds like a superhuman Christian, doesn't it? Jesus throws this little parable on the end of this. He's going to ask three questions, okay? We, we might be tempted to think that, that, and we might be tempted to think too, that if I'm a disciple that, that I'm marked by that, that I must be extraordinary and I am definitely going to get MVP of the disciple group this year, right? I'm definitely going to get the plaque this year, and it's not going to be for most improved seventh grade basketball player. Jesus quickly dispels that, and he asks three questions, and they, they're questions designed to be yes-no answers, and let me give you the answers before I give you the questions. The, the answers are no, yes, no, okay? Say it with me. No, yes, no. So here are the questions. Verse 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come and sit down and have dinner with me? That's what he says there in verse 7. What's the first answer? You don't do that to servants. Servants who plow and keep your sheep, that's their job, right? And Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not the way that, that our culture works here. You know, when you have servants, you don't just invite them in to sit down. No. He asks a second question. Will he not rather say to him, verse 8, hey, thank you for taking care of the fields. Now, make me some dinner. Isn't that what he says there in verse 8? Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Is that, is that, what's the answer for that one, church? That's how you treat a servant. That's what servants do, right? They work in the field, then they come in and they make dinner, and they get dressed properly, and they serve that dinner to the master, and then they get their turn to eat. Then Jesus asks the third question. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? What's the answer? No. This is your job. This is what I told you to do. This is what you are, are signed up for here as a servant. You're, you're, to do what, you're to do what I tell you to do. And then Jesus makes application that applies to all of us. You see it there in verse 10? So you also. So you, Dan, also. Right? When you have done all that you were commanded, say this, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Not even a participation ribbon here. Right? 
not even a little trinket to bring back home and put on the mantle. No. You see, disciples, we're called to be ordinary. We're, we're not called to serve to get things. We're not called to serve to get little pats on the back. We're called to serve because we love our master. Unworthy servants are not worthy of special honor here. And here's the thing. This is hard. Because, because we, are, we are constantly bombarded with this idea that if I, that I, if I rise above, if I do something extraordinary, there, there's always somebody there to pat me on the back, to tell me I'm doing a great job, to, to affirm me. And Jesus is basically saying here, no, you're doing what I've called you to do. You're not doing anything extra here. You're doing exactly what I've called you to do. Just keep on keeping on. And as I consider this, there's something really big here that has to happen in all of us to make this work. There's only one way for this to work for all of us. Number one, you've got to understand this. Christian duty is not extraordinary. It's the way we're called to live. Let me put it to you bluntly. If you are not actively involved in serving the Lord in some way, in some outlet, you're not doing it right as a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? If you're not actively serving him, if you're not, if you're not out there, and if you're not actively watching your testimony, if you're not actively forgiving, if you're not actively rebuking sin, you're not doing it right. And Jesus says, this is not worthy of special commendation. Kent Hughes in his commentary said this, we're just called to be extraordinarily ordinary. That's what we're called to be. But I said there's only one way that this works. And, and, and because what I think Jesus is doing here in a really subtle but a really masterful way is warning us all against something that, that is all a root sin that we deal with and it's called pride and presumption. It's called pride and presumption. He, he's giving us a call for humility here. If you're not humble in the way you live, you are going to set traps for others who come behind you. If you're not humble, you're, you're going to think you're better than other people and that you don't need to rebuke sin, and you're certainly not going to forgive people. This is an ultimate call for humility. He's calling us to servanthood. And I immediately, my mind goes to Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> And, and the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, and, and what does he picture Jesus as for, uh, for us there in chapter 2? He pictures him as the servant, right? He pictures him as the servant, the one who was in the form of God, who didn't think it robbery to, to, be, to be called God and to have the attributes of God, but he laid it all aside... He emptied himself, kenosis, he emptied himself of that and took on himself the form of the servant. And I say to you, if Jesus can do that, who do we think we are that we won't? Who do we think we are if we won't?
It's a call for humility. Here's the thing. You and I cannot be, I can't be an ordinary disciple without a great measure of humility. I can't. And you can't either. But, but there, there is a subtle look forward here as well that I want us to catch. So in verse, in verse 8, he talks about the meal, right? So you come in, and, and you come in, and, and you've been out working all day taking care of the fields and the sheep, right? And, and, and there's a meal time, right? And, and he says, you're going to serve me the meal first, and, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna dress properly, and you're going to serve me my meal while I eat, and then you're going to get to eat later. But you know what happens to disciples whenever Christ returns for us? We get to sit down with him at the meal. We get to sit down with him at the meal. This is a point forward here. We don't have to come in from serving anymore. One day, the disciples of Jesus will be invited to come sit with him as he eats at the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a glorious thing that's going to be. But until then, he calls us to serve him faithfully. He calls us to serve him humbly. He calls us to just be ordinary. I hope if you've gotten nothing else this morning that you've gotten this, it's, it's, it's good to be ordinary. It's good to be ordinary. But I think one of the things that saddens me is, is, is that ordinary stands out so much that we treat it like it's extraordinary because not enough of us are ordinary. Did you catch that? <laughs> not enough of us are ordinary. So that when we are ordinary, it looks like we're being extraordinary. Oh, that we were a community of believers that were just ordinary disciples. That were humble enough to, to honestly self-assess ourselves and, and just cry out to, to Jesus, increase our faith. Increase our faith. So this week, what does this mean as you go home? Don't wait for someone to come pat you on the back because you did your time in the nursery or because you gave $20 to somebody and you didn't have that $20 to give or, or that, you, that you confronted somebody in their sin. No one, and guess what? No one's going to pat you on the back because you confronted somebody in their sin. They're not. But just remember, the one that you serve is paying attention. The one that you serve is paying attention. And he's calling you and I to just ordinary faithfulness, day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, until he invites us to the supper table with him. Father, we can't help but read this text and just have to ask you, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Multiply it. Multiply it so that we will be faithful in our testimony. Multiply it so that we will be faithful to rebuke sin around us, that we'll be sensitive to it in our own lives, that we'll be faithful to forgive. And then, Lord, give to us that servant mentality. What a, what a privilege it is to be able to serve the Almighty One.
You have rescued us from being the slaves and servants of sin to serve you. May we do it with joy. May we do it with gladness. May we do it diligently. Looking forward to that day that's coming when we will be invited to sit and, and be served in the kingdom. What a blessed thing that will be. In Jesus' name, amen.